Well, good morning, Chapel Rock. We're glad you're here this morning and uh, glad that you're going to be a part of this message this morning. We're in a series on an epic story, a storyline. Last week, the buddy story and how that shows up in literature time and time again, but more prominently sometimes in Scripture. And today, then we're going to talk about uh, that theme of overcoming the monster in your life. It's the underdog story and how that shows up in literature, but specifically, it shows up in the Bible as well. So before we dive in, before we look at what God has to say to us, why don't we pray together? Our Father in heaven, I'm so Well, good morning, Chapel Rock. We're glad you're here this morning and uh, glad that you're going to be a part of this message this morning. We're in a series on an epic story, a storyline where you'll see various parts of literature spelled out and how Father, may you receive the glory and the honor for what we do here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was 1954 in a little high school in southern Indiana, Milan High School. Worked their way through the sectionals, the regionals, the semi-state. Well, good morning, Chapel Rock. We're glad you're here this morning and uh, glad that you're going to be a part Cats. I mean, Milan was not even thought to have been in the picture. They were considered to be the largest underdog ever seen by anyone in sports history here in Indiana. All the big schools were going to win, and Muncie Central certainly looked like they were going to do that. A population at Muncie Central, 1,663 students in 1954. You know what the population of student body was at Milan? 163 kids. They were the underdog. They were not going to have a chance, according to all people. But you know the outcome, don't you? You know what happened that night. Bobby Plump hit that jump shot toward the end of the game, and Milan High School wins a state high school basketball championship in 1954. An underdog? <laughs> Not anymore. You may know the name Jose Altuve. And I know that, that people don't recognize that name readily. Plays second base for the Houston Astros. He stands 5'6", weighs 164 pounds, and was drafted as an undrafted free agent with no chance to really make the roster. But for the last three seasons, he's dominated the hitting title in the National League and, and in the American League. He's been the league MVP, and his team won a World Series. Jose Altuve, an underdog? Not anymore. Or you may consider this last February in the Super Bowl, the Philadelphia Eagles coming in with a, a backup quarterback, a guy who had played well the week before, the week before that, but was a backup. They really didn't have all the personnel they thought they should have, playing the New England Patriots, who were the ultimate uh, picture of what football should be like at the Super Bowl, it seems like every other year, if not every year. And Philadelphia Eagles were the underdog. But who won in February? Church, you know. The Philadelphia Eagles. An underdog? Not anymore. Rudy Rudiger went to Notre Dame University and hoped to walk on the football team. And uh, Rudy was not a very good football player. 
According to the movie, if you've seen it, he was five foot nothing and weighed a hundred and nothing, you know. And um, he was out there competing with athletes who were all Americans. But every year he stuck it out, and every year he played the role of the backup team, the the scout team, the run the other team stuff against the first teamers and just got beat up time after time. Finally got to his last year of eligibility, was not dressing for any of the games, was ready to quit when he does get the honor from his teammates of dressing out for one home game in his last year. And of all things, he got in for one or two plays toward the end of the game, and guess what? He makes a tackle and sacks a quarterback in the backfield, and everybody goes crazy. Rudy Rudiger, an underdog? Not anymore. It happened to Vince Papali. Vince Papali loved his Philadelphia Eagles, and in the early 1980s, he was just working a factory job, substitute teaching in a high school, and Vince Papali had never played a lick of football above the high school level. But... The new coach, Dick Vermeil, came to town, decided to do a publicity stunt. He had a, a tryout for anyone who thought that they could make the Philadelphia Eagle roster. And all of these people showed up. Well, his buddies said, Vince, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. He showed up, and Dick Vermeil liked him so much that he invited him to training camp. And then he went from training camp to making the first cut. And from making the first cut to making the second cut. And for making the second cut to being on the roster for the Philadelphia Eagles. And Vince Papali played for the next three years in the National Football League when he never, ever should have been on the field. An underdog? Not anymore. I mean, I got all kinds of stories I could tell you. We could go on for hours about underdog people. The 1980 U.S. hockey team beating the Russians. You know, you could go there. You could go to, to, to the Butler basketball team of 2010, 2011, making the Final Four, even though they shouldn't have been in the, in the NCAA tournament. I, I mean, you've got, you've got people like Kurt Warner coming out of the Arena Football League and becoming an all-pro quarterback, winning a Super Bowl, having a wonderful career. And you've got, you've got all kinds of North Carolina. State, 1983, beats the University of Houston, five slamma jamma, and they beat them on the last second dunk. I mean, I, I've got, you want more? Yeah. <laughs> Underdogs. Underdogs, every single one. But not anymore. Hmm. And if you tell me you picked the University of Maryland Baltimore campus retrievers to beat the University of Virginia in this year's NCAA tournament? I've got one scripture verse for you. 1 John 1 and the last part of verse 6. You lie and the truth is not in you. you know? <laughs> They're the ultimate underdogs. So what is, what, what is the, the real definition of an underdog? What, what do we find here today that, that really defines that for us? Well, the ultimate definition of an underdog is this. It's a, comp a competition or a competitor in a competition thought to have very little chance of winning. I mean, there's no way. The dark horse, the long shot, the little guy, you know, the, they're not supposed to be where they are, but somehow they are. 
I don't know if you saw this on the CBS News one evening, but I want to show it to you here today. This kid was an underdog, but he got it right. Watch the screen. Many a young athlete entertains hoop dreams. Few, if any, have tried as hard to make them come true as the kid our Steve Hartman has gone to see. Every week, he set himself up for disappointment. Every week, 13-year-old Jamarian Stiles came to this community center in Boca Raton, Florida, hoping to play basketball with the other kids. And every week, he was rejected. They'll start picking teams, and I would be the only one left out. And then they'll just tell me, just go home and stuff. You can break someone's heart like that. The problem was obvious to everyone but Jamarian. He lost his hands and most of his arms as an infant due to a rare bacterial infection. But he insisted that was no reason to give up his hoop dreams. What about soccer? Have you heard of that sport? Yeah, hear it every day. <laughs> Why don't you play soccer? That just seems like the obvious thing. You would think that I would be good at soccer. I'm really not. I'm horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, on the first day of class here at Eagles Landing Middle School, Jamarian took his case to basketball coach Darian Williams. Yeah. Said he wanted to be on the team this year. I said, all great, well, just make sure you try out. But you say, okay, great, but what are you really thinking? <laughs> this man has no arms. Yeah. How is he going to play basketball? But, man, he told me, Mr. Williams, I've never been on a team before. Even if I don't play, I just want to be on the team. And how could I say no to that? And that's how the Eagles got their first armless basketball player. Jamarian, number two there, quickly earned a reputation as the hardest worker on the squad. He was usually the first one in the gym, usually the last one to leave. Still, he sat on the bench most of the season. Try one more. Until last month. Coach put him in the game with about six minutes left. And when he eventually got the ball on the far side of the court, everyone yelled, shoot it! So he did, and sank a three-pointer. And if you didn't quite see that, don't worry, because shortly after, he got the ball again, this time on the near side, for another three-pointer. At the buzzer. Jamarian Stiles, the kid no one would pick, was now everyone's hero. Needless to say, today, Jamarian can play all he wants at the community center. He just made the volleyball team and has every intention of playing football next year. Really, the only thing he won't play is the victim. If I could wave a magic wand right now and give you your arms back, would you want them? I don't need them. <laughs> you don't need them? No. Nope. Who needs hands when you've got this kind of touch? Yep, an underdog but not anymore. Now today, I don't want to talk about any of those other stories I've just given you. I want to talk to you about what possibly is the most famous underdog of all time. No, 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 not that guy. Not that guy. Not that guy. Although he's famous, right? You know? I want to talk to you about a Bible story that paints the picture of the underdog. The story is David and Goliath. You've probably heard parts of it before. If you've not read the whole thing, if you've not seen what happens in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 17, then let me prepare you for what God does with this underdog story. David's already been chosen in chapter 16 to be the next king of Israel. 
But because God's timing is not yet ready, he's still tending sheep for his dad and watching out for them. But one day his dad calls him in and says, Hey, your older brothers are off to war. They're out at the Valley Elah. They're fighting the Philistine army. I need for you to go and check on them. And so take some of this roasted grain, some bread, take some cheese with you. You go check on them, find out how they are, get the report, bring it back to me. So David does the very thing. He leaves the sheep with the other shepherds. He takes all those things. He heads out to the Valley of Elah. And when he gets there, he sees the nation of Israel, their army on one side of the valley, and the Philistine army on the other side. And down in the middle, in the valley is this giant of a man. His name is Goliath. And every morning and every evening for 40 days, this guy has walked into the valley and he's cursed at God, he's cursed at the Israelite army and called them a bunch of pansies, well, in Philistine language, that's what he said. And he just said, you guys aren't worth anything. And he cursed them and ripped at them. And David shows up that day and he hears this guy down there making this uh, accusation. And he says, who's going to do anything about this guy? And all the Philistine guys, including his brothers, were like, yeah, not me. You know, I'm not going down there. I mean, the guy's over nine feet tall, according to the scripture. And, and the armor he's wearing weighs well over 25 pounds, just the breastplate area. He, he's got all the things he needs to fight as a warrior. The tip of his spear is bigger than your head and weighs more than 15 pounds. I mean, the guy is a giant. He's got scars and he's got all kinds of things on his body. He's been a warrior since his youth. I mean, the scripture is very clear. This guy was definitely the official candidate to win the battle in the valley. And David said, well, if you guys aren't going to do something, I'll go down there. And his brothers thought it was just a, an act, a, you know, kind of getting the prejudice against the, the other brothers and, and gaining all the glory for himself. And, and so they got mad at him, and, well, that, the brothers had a problem. And, uh, and David said, I, I'm going to go down there. And they took him to King Saul. And King Saul said, now, what are you, what are you saying? He said, I, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to fight that guy, that uncircumcised Philistine. I'm going down there. And Saul said, I don't think that's a good idea. He's a trained warrior. He's killed a lot of men. I don't think that's a great idea. And David said, look, I'll go. Don't worry about me. So Saul says this. Listen now, I'm going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 34. As Saul says to him, I think you better be careful. You're only a boy. He's a fighting man. David says in verse 34, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock... I went after it, I struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when the animal turned on me, I seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now listen very carefully. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of of this Philistine. So King Saul said to David, well, okay, go, and the Lord be with you, you know. Now, I find that interesting. Then Saul tries to do this. He says, now you can't go out there without armor. So here, 
take my armor, put it on, and go down there. David tries it on. He walks around for a minute and says, I can't use this. This is your armor. It's not mine. I don't need this. I fought lions and bears without it, so all I need is a sling and some stones, and I'm good. And Saul says, yep, okay. And so David heads down the side of the mountain and into the valley. And David is down there, and the giant is moving toward him, and they're going to come into conflict. And then the story picks up again. As the giant sees him, he says, what, what, what is the deal? They send a little boy to fight me? And he looks at the sling, and there's no spears or swords or anything else. And he says, are you going to come with sticks, basically? You think you can beat me with sticks? And so he curses at David, and he curses at God, and that's it. And David says this, beginning in verse 45 to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'll strike you down. I'll cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world. Now listen, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You better mark that in your Bible. You better put an underline on that or a star beside it. Because when David goes in the power of the Lord, everybody is going to know who God is. All those gathered here will know that it's not by the sword or the spear. And the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, which, by the way, is very difficult to do, because in those days, all those people who wore armor wore a helmet, and the nose piece came down over their nose, so it covered their forehead. So my guess is the giant was moving, and the helmet was bobbing, and David was very good with a sling, but not that good. He practiced on animals. He'd probably swung a few around just to hit other rocks to be sure he could protect the sheep. But it says that he took out the stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into the forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and he killed him. Wow. An underdog? <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Later on, if you read the rest of the chapter, it says that the Israelite army then saw what happened. They ran after the Philistine army, killed a bunch of them, won the battle with the help of God. David went down, cut off the head of Goliath, and then he was asked to come see King Saul. At the end of the chapter, You'll see at the end of the chapter, he walks into the tent of King Saul, and Saul says, Who are you? And David says, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Did you catch that? Of Bethlehem. 
which is where Jesus was born. And this is where the lineage from David begins. I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. The underdog story. There are lessons we can learn. There are things that we can take away from this story in the Bible today that will help us fight our life battles. They'll help us get beyond what it seems to dominate our lives, what seems to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And what are those things that we can learn? Well, the very first thing is simply this. We can learn the equipment that God has given us for life's battles. We can learn that equipment that God's given us for life battles. What is that equipment? I'm going to give you three real quick here, and I want you to see from the story what they are. Number one, life experiences, life victories. Did you notice when he talked to Saul, Saul said, okay, if you're going to go, God be with you. He said, don't worry about me. I've killed lions and bears, previous victories, previous wins. God delivered me from them. He'll deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. You got to go back in your life and look at the times when God has given you a win. You got to go back and look at a time when God has brought you a victory, when a God has worked in an experience that you didn't attempt to see, and God's made it so that you can see Him at work on your behalf. And when you have those temptations and those addictions and those difficulties and those times when you've walked away from God, you've got to depend on the victories that He gave you to draw you back to Him. You've got to trust in Him. Secondly, you're going to have this. You're going to have God's power. You've got the Holy Spirit power of God in your life. We know that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have an indwelling gift of God's Holy Spirit, and that's the same power that was available at the resurrection of Jesus. And so you've got that same power working for you, and David did as well. And thirdly, thirdly, the equipment you have is God's presence. Remember this phrase, the battle belongs to the Lord. You can't do it on your own. You can't win on your own. You can't overcome that addiction on your own. You can't overcome that jealousy on your own. You cannot overcome the anger on your own. You're going to have to have God in the battle, fighting the battle with you and for you because the battle belongs to the Lord. That's the equipment God gives you. You need to understand that. You need to note that. You need to write that down. And you need to depend upon that in order to win the victory. But what else can we learn? Well, secondly, we can learn not just what equipment we have for life's battle. But we can also see what focus we need to have. From this story, we learn what our focus should be in life's Battles. I'm going to give you three things here that I think you can see from the story. They're going to help you to focus better on what you should be doing. Number one is simply this. You've got to focus on the victories and not on defeat. How many times, how many times do you sit and wallow in your own sorrow and in your own pity and you won't get up out of it because you can only think about what you've done or how you've failed or how you've been defeated instead of focusing on God and on the victories that he brings. My goodness gracious, you've got to focus on what God can do, not what you have not been able to do. You've got to give him first place. Which brings me to number two, you've got to focus on God and no one else. 
You can't be focused on somebody else. Did you know, if you go back and read in this text and you write it out, you're going to find out that David speaks about God nine times. He speaks about the Philistine, Goliath, the giant, twice. And both times he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Now that ratio is 4.5 to 1. Or let's just say 4 to 1. David thinks about God four times as much as he's thinking about the giant. I wonder how many of you think about God's grace four times as much as you think about your guilt. I wonder how many of you think about God's power four times as much as you think about what you're not able to do. I wonder if you're focused on God rather on the things of this world. And here's number three. What you learn, and here's the focus you should have, trust God to bring glory to his name. Yeah. A couple of passages of scripture I want to show you. We begin in the Old Testament, and we're going to stay there. But I want you to go to Psalm with me, and I want you to see Psalm 18. We have that. We're going to get that here in a minute. Psalm 18, there you go. In verse 1, it says, I love you, Lord. You're my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He's my God. He's my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies, my giants, yeah, my, my monsters, those things that get at me in life, God saves me from those. And I love Proverbs 3. <laughs> Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will make your paths straight. Who? He will. Not you. Not you. Your focus must be in trusting God and letting Him receive the glory for what takes place. So we can learn about the equipment that we have that's in the scripture. We can learn about the focus we should have that's in the scripture. And then there are four simple lessons that this story, this story of overcoming the monsters, beating the giants, four lessons you're going to learn here that'll help you. Number one is this. I want you to see this on the screen. Facing giants can be intimidating. I mean, let's face it. When you face giants, it's intimidating. You didn't see anybody else running down in the valley to fight Goliath, did you? All you saw, I, I, my guess, in my mind, when I read this story, I see these soldiers of Israel, and every time Goliath goes into the valley and starts yelling obscenities, they hide. They duck. They get behind a rock or a cliff or something. They don't want to be exposed to this guy because, whoa, that guy's bad news. And I'm not going down there. Facing giants can be intimidating. But let me remind you what 1 John 4, 4 says. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God is greater. His grace is greater than your sin. And God is greater than any giant you'll ever face. So make sure you understand facing giants is intimidating, but God is greater. Here's lesson number two. Doing battle can be lonely. You bet it can be lonely. Why? Because it's your battle. It's not anybody else's battle. 
It's not one that you can win on your own. You're going to have to have God's help. But, but nobody else can fight it for you. Nobody else can come up as a good friend and say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll step in and I'll do that for you. you. It can't happen that way. In fact, if you understand 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He didn't say we. He said I did. But if you read the rest of the context, you know he did it with God's help. So I want you to know doing battle can be lonely. Now, I get it. We've got brothers and sisters who pray for us. We've got brothers and sisters who walk through life with us. I get it. But the battle belongs to the Lord. And you and him, you've got to fight it. Here's lesson number three. Trusting God is stabilizing. When you really trust God, it'll stabilize who you are as a believer in him. I've always loved the story of Daniel. And when he's in captivity and he's doing really well and God's blessing him and all of a sudden people get jealous and they want him to be taken out of office or done away with and they can't find a way to do it because, listen now, the scripture says they could not find anything in his life to accuse him with. Nothing. They couldn't find one single thing to use against Daniel. That's what the Bible says. And so they come up with an odd scheme and they, get the, they trick the king to sign a decree that says anybody who worships anyone else or anything else except him, they get thrown in the lion's den. He signs it, signs off on it, puts a seal on it. Daniel hears about it. Does Daniel sit down and cry and wallow in his pity? No. Does Daniel say, oh man, I better escape and run for it? No. You know what Daniel does? He goes back to his house. He goes up to a window. He opens the window toward Jerusalem. And the Bible says he prays. He prays. And here's the key phrase for me. In Daniel 6 and verse 10 it says, Just as he has done before. He's no foreigner to prayer. He puts all his faith and trust in God. He lays it all out there. He says, God, I'm going to need your help in all this. You know the rest of the story. If you've read that story in the Old Testament, he gets thrown in a lion's den. They don't bug him. He spends the night in there. Next morning, the king runs to the opening and says, Daniel. He says, I'm good. Get me out. You know? Why? Because he trusted God. Here's the question for you. Do you trust God with your most difficult battle in life? Do you put your hand in his? Because you know the battle belongs to the Lord. Good life lesson. Here's lesson number four. Winning a victory is memorable. Anytime you can put a victory under your belt, it's big. Anytime you can win big over a giant, it's bigger. It's, it's important to remember and to have those victories in your life. It gives you a little momentum in living for Jesus. And I believe it's important. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, not 45, 4 and 5. There's no 45 verses in chapter 5, 1 John. Make that note, 4-5, okay? It says there, it says there that when we win, we win by faith because faith overcomes the world it's your faith in God it's your trust in him and those four life lessons they'll carry you a long way in winning life's battles
Let me say this. Listen very carefully. Let me say this. If you allow your giants, if you allow your problems, your difficulties in life to hang around, and you don't, with God's help, beat them, they will overtake your life. Your anger, your jealousy, your addictions, they'll overtake your life. But if you trust God, you allow him to fight the battle for you, you win. You win. I can't help but think in this story of the Old Testament that somewhere along the line, the Spirit of God whispered in, in, in David's ear and said this, just grab some stones and grab a sling and I'll take it from there. Because you're going to tell me that that stone that David slung at the giant, he was so good that it not only hit him in the forehead, but it sunk in far enough to kill that giant over nine feet tall? Not without God. Not without God's help. I got to tell you, when my brother and I were young and we were playing in the backyard, he threw a rock at me, it hit me in the forehead, and it bounced off. Left a red mark, you know. I chased him around the yard for a half an hour, you know. But it didn't sink in. The only way the giant went down was because God made sure. And the only way you win in life is when God makes sure. Okay? So here we are. Here we are. And who are you? Remember the end of the story? Who are you? I'm a son of the servant Jesse. Right now, who are you? Let me tell you this. You're a child of the king. You've been powered by the Holy Spirit. You've been built up in the word of God. You've been prayed up by the other saints in the church. You've been wired up by God himself. You are no longer an underdog. Not anymore. You're a child of the king. Remember it and use it to win your life's battles in this life. But today, if you say, you know what, I really don't know. I don't know that. I want to remind you, because that's what the Bible says. In in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful or marvelous light (laughs) you're a child of the king you're not an underdog not anymore when you belong to jesus you're a child of the king and today you have the opportunity to make sure that's real If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you feel like life's battles are beating you up and tearing you down, don't worry about it. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender everything you've got to him and let him take on your battles. If you are here today and you've been a believer for a long time, but you're still struggling to win the battles that are in your life, then be sure you've surrendered everything to Jesus. And this would be the time to do it, to come down front and use the steps And surrender that thing that's holding you back from being everything that God wants you to be. 
Either way today, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, if you've got questions, if you're really thinking through what God wants you to do, go to the next step room after the service. Have a conversation with somebody who can help lead you through that. Whatever you need to do today, do it in the name of the Lord because he no longer wants you to be an underdog. He wants you to be his kid, his child. You're a child of the king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we don't have to be on the losing end of life on a regular basis. We're so grateful, Lord, that when we do fail in a battle because we haven't leaned on you, that you're still there. We can come to you. We can ask you for help. So, Lord, today, I think what we need to do here today, every single one of us, we still need to surrender, to wave the white flag, to let the battle be yours. So God, that's what we want to do. So may your spirit move among us and move our hearts to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.